Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. This has been a very tough week in America, and the struggle isn't over. I don't want to pass over the fact that this is a moment in our history when people are taking to the streets to protest police violence against Black Americans. As such, I believe that we should be listening to Black voices right now. But in all honesty, I wasn't able to turn around a new episode quickly enough. So instead of Black voices in the industry, today's episode is the audio from my Music Biz Live chat with new MLC CEO, Chris Arendt. It's a great conversation filled with good information for everyone in the music space, but I wanted to acknowledge that this moment should be taken seriously and that I'm not ignoring what's happening in our world. As always, support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to the new MLC CEO, Chris Arendt. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Chris Arend. So, you know, everyone in the industry is so excited to hear from you. I know that that might feel sort of like pressure, but no pressure. You know, we're just all excited. We're, is this the first time in your career that you really get to be treated like a rock star? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And ironically, or unfortunately, I've lost all my hair. So I, I don't have the rock star hair for the moment. You know, I've been in the industry for several decades and spent the first part of that working as a lawyer and a business affairs person. And that's certainly a more behind the scenes role. And then more recently, I've been in leadership roles on the business and administrative side. And that is not the side of the business that normally gets coverage in billboards. So yeah, this is certainly a, a bit of a change for me, but a really exciting one because it calls attention to the important work that the MLC will be doing. Exactly. Just to sort of set the scene, I really wanted to talk about the fact that this moment in our world and in our history is actually quite impressive in one way, which is that I feel like we are more unified as an industry than we've ever been before. I've been saying for weeks now that if this pandemic had hit 20 years ago, we would have had a very different response as an industry. And I feel like that all started with the passage of the MMA, you know, with the fact that every sector of the industry came together, we worked together to get the MMA passed. And of course, you know, I would say the unity in the industry is one of the results of that. But it's also the other big result is the MLC, of course, and you are in charge of that. Yes. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, I've often heard it said that the level of change that the MMA brought on our industry is the type of thing that happens once every generation or two. And it was a unique moment in that all of the major stakeholders from every side of the business came together and agreed on this legislation and led to its passage. So there was certainly unanimity around the MMA, which is fantastic. And for us now, as we begin to build the organization that will deliver on the promises of the MMA, There's also, I think, an opportunity to continue that because 
while there were, will continue to be debates and disputes over what the rate should be, as an example, there's no disagreement among all the stakeholders about the importance of the MLC being successful in its mission, right? We need to pay creators and publishers effectively. And that's something that everyone is aligned on. So I look forward to continuing that sense of unity and continuing to tap into the support of all of those stakeholders to be successful in our mission. Absolutely. So, you know, the MLC is kind of a bright spot in our industry right now in general. Another kind of interesting bright spot is that you guys have been doing a bunch of hiring lately. And we had a webinar. You guys did a webinar with Music Biz a couple of weeks ago. I understand you got over 200 applications for 10 to 15 positions. Yes, it was phenomenal. Thank you to you and your team for that webinar. It was so helpful to us in getting the message out. And, you know, that's been one of the really interesting things about the journey so far. I joined the MLC at the beginning of the year in January. And at that time was essentially employee number two. Richard Thompson, our CIO, had joined before me. You know, since then, we've built the team to almost 20, and we're getting ready now to hire a number of additional roles that we spoke about on that webinar that will help to fill out the team even further. They'll certainly be suitable to students getting out of college now this spring. And, you know, to think that we will have gone from, again, a pair of people at the beginning of January to, you know, maybe 40 or more people by July is extraordinary and and head spinning for me, but shows it was one metric to show all the work that's been happening behind the scenes. So it's very exciting. I'm very excited. Definitely. So yeah, you're in the process of building the team. And I I definitely want you to talk about sort of the stages that you're going to go through to you know achieve the goals of the MLC. But before we get into that, I just wanted to talk to you because when you and I were talking before, you said something that I thought was so important. You know, when I started my podcast, The Future of What, six years ago, the whole point of it was to help change the narrative about the music business, right? With, with this sort of notion that, you know, artists don't get paid and artists are exploited. And I kept thinking, you know, I've been in the music business 20 years and I work with people every day whose entire, you know, heart and soul goes into helping artists you know, in all walks of the industry, you know, from publicists to people who calculate mechanical royalties and pay them, you know, so I just feel like that's such a big thing for you too, is this concept of changing the narrative. I wanted you to speak to that a little. Yeah. And, and I think like so many of us, you know, my view has evolved over time and has been informed by my own journey. You know, as a kid, I was a musician and, and I, I tried to write some songs and recorded a few of them. And I thought that there might be a way, a path for me on the creative side of the business. And certainly that's what attracted me to the business initially was wanting to be a part of the creative process. But, you know, as I got into the industry and, and learned more about it, what, you know, what became clearer to me is this notion that all of the people in our industry, all of the companies, they all essentially do similar things. And you can boil it down to two promises that we all make to the creators that we serve and support. And the first one is the one that I alluded to. It's being a part of that creative process, you know, helping creators cultivate their creativity and then bringing that to the world. And that is exciting and rewarding and wonderful in all the ways that we all know it to be. But the other thing that I started to see was that there was the second promise that we all make, and that's to make sure that the creators with whom we work are paid properly. And while that may not be the, the, the side of the business that gets all the attention and that may track the glamour, 
as I got to know artists personally over the years of my career, and in particular working at Rhino, which is a catalog label at Warner, I was over and over again faced with this reality that for so many of our creators, it's that second promise that is the thing that matters, especially if the part of their career that is devoted to creativity has perhaps shifted and and they're no longer making music as much as they were. They continue to make a living based on the creative things that they've done. So that second promise to me is so important and it's so important to creators. It's the thing that allows them to keep being creators. And I think for us as an industry, it's imperative that we support that and we value that and we make that a priority. So that was sort of how my career started to shift and what led me to get more involved in the administrative side of the business because I saw that as an opportunity to make a difference for the creators that I felt so passionately about. And the chance to move to the MLC was this amazing opportunity to double down on that and to help build and lead an organization that is exclusively focused on that second promise. So for me, this is a passion that has you know developed over many years, and I'm so thrilled and, and feel really privileged to be in a place now where I can make that my life's work and my focus. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's always worth it to mention again that, you know, this industry has gone through a number of sea changes, but the most recent big upheaval was, you know, before the pandemic, sorry, was the shift from being a physical marketplace to a largely digital and streaming marketplace. And with that shift, I always talk about this on my podcast because people don't think about it in terms of the cash flow you know, we went from a situation where you basically like a record label, which I used to run was paid once or twice a year by their distributor. And then that was their money for the year. And then they paid their artists either, you know, twice a year or four times a year. But now we're, you know, as soon as digital came into the world, people started getting paid monthly, but the number of places where those payments are coming from just exploded exponentially. And it's become really like a full-time job for an artist to keep track of all the little pennies and fractions of pennies that they need to account for it so that they can make up a full income if they can make up a full income. And the great promise of the MLC is that it's going to be another income stream for artists. And I think that's one reason why everyone's so excited about what you guys are going to do. So let's just get into the sort of plan. Your ultimate mission is to match works info to sound recordings, but you have a series of steps you have to go through to get to that process. Do you want to walk us through that? Sure. Again, starting from the beginning, before we can do anything, we had to build the foundation for a company. You know, so the first three months of the year for me were spent on, you know, what might be viewed as very mundane things like figuring out how we pay employees and how do we get benefits for employees? Because I wasn't going to have much success in pitching employees three, four, and five to join if I didn't have a way to pay them or offer them benefits. So, you know, there's so many practical things like that, that I'm sure many of the people today watching will appreciate um, because there's so many entrepreneurs in our business, but it's, it's not just the thing you do. It's the things you need to do to pay and support your team and create that environment that allows them to work with you. So, We did a lot of work like that um, in the first three months, and that really set the stage then for the first wave of growth, which was growing from, you know, again, two to close to 20. And then all the while behind the scenes and going back to before the time I joined, you know, we were working with our key partners on the technology front to begin building the user portal that will connect all of the folks we pay with the data that we will manage. 
so that they can both see the data and help us to improve the data and then ultimately be paid. So the technology piece has been ongoing for many, many months and the building of the organization has started more recently. And all of that will converge sometime in the third quarter this year when we expect to begin to roll out that user portal and we'll also then essentially pull in as much of that data from Harry Fox as possible and that will be the foundation for our data. And from that point, we'll begin to work with publishers and self-administered creators to, again, get their data in the best shape possible to prepare for that license availability date in January 21. And that is the big date for us. That's the date we need to be able to begin administering those licenses, receiving those usage reports, and then begin the process of calculating and paying royalties. And we remain on track to be open and ready to do that. Right. Which, you know, January of 21 may have sounded far away three months ago, but yeah, sounds a lot closer right now for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. When, when you're sitting in your house, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> just hard because there's just all these conversations we have to have because racism is just, you know, it's bad right now. We have to have all these people of color. We have to have all these conversations. And unfortunately, we have to have them with white people. <laughs> It'd be easy if we could just have them with each other. There's racism right there. Sure is. Papa, see you later. And I'm not mad at you white people, let me be clear. I'm not mad at you, you're not the ones who are here, you're some of the good ones. You're not like the rest. You speak so well. All I'm trying to say is. (laughs) I like to be like, hey, that started out as a conflict, but then it hurt my feelings. I know, I know. I learned it from you, dad, I learned it from you. Yeah, so, but it's just, you have to have these conversations and it's just this weird thing. Like, white people, sometimes your response to stories of racism are just so troubling. And I'm talking about, like, I'm not talking about, like, the, on the, the right, because the right has the same response. When you, if you tell somebody on the right you had a racist thing happen, they go, there's no such thing as racism. You go, okay, I'll block you on Twitter. We're done here, you know? <laughs> I don't got to watch Fox News. I can turn the channel, you know? But then there's that thing that happens with white people who are your friends, who are on the left, and that thing where you go, where you go, hey, I had a thing happen, it was racism. They go, how'd you know it was racism? <laughs> See, everybody goes, oh, oh, people call her, oh, no, yeah. How do, you, so you, do you get that response sometimes? How do you know it's racist? And it happens like this. How do you know it's racist? With like a shuffle step. How do you know it's racist? I guess I'm kind of an expert in this. I've been studying it my whole life, whether I want to do or not. I kind of know. And let me just explain why people, this is what it sounds like when you say that to us, because I don't think you get how crazy that sounds. It would be like if I was to run into you on the street, collective white person. And I was like, hey, what do you do today? He was like, well, I got up, I ran some errands, and I had lunch. What'd you have for lunch? I had pizza. How'd you know it was pizza? (laughs) You'd be like, what are you talking about? Because I knew it was pizza. It was clearly said pizza. I had pizza almost every day. That's what I think is suspicious. How are you having all this pizza every day? Because there's pizza everywhere in the world. No, I don't see all this pizza you're seeing. I don't think you had pizza. Are you sure it wasn't pita bread with cheese on it? Are you sure it wasn't pita bread with cheese on it? No, it was pizza. I've eaten a lot of pizza in my life. My parents ate a lot of pizza. My grandparents ate a lot of pizza. My great-grandparents, my great-great-great-grandparents were brought to this country to make pizza, but they weren't allowed to eat it weirdly. I know it was pizza. I don't know. Let me ask somebody else who's never had pizza. Come here. You've never had pizza. Do you think that? I don't think it was pizza. He's always talking about pizza. Now I have to kill you. That's what I'm saying. How do I know it's pizza? That's what it sounds like, white people. 
And then there's a new thing that has happened, a new response at white people who are trying to be your friends and they think they're helping you. Like that thing, that horrible thing happened in South Carolina where the young girl, black teenage girl, was thrown across the room by the cop and it was horrible. And it was like a 15 second video. And there's white people going like, I need the whole story. <laughs> what, a cop walks over, picks up a black girl, throws her across the room, yeah, but that's only 15 seconds long. I need the whole story. How do we, when are we gonna get the whole story? I just feel like, all right. This is what I do, do this. You want the whole story? Our story begins during the transatlantic slave trade. <laughs> there was a big boat and black people were packed on tight and they shipped us across the water. Then they made us work for a long time and didn't pass anything. And eventually a black girl was picked up and thrown across the room in South Carolina. <laughs> By then they're like, I don't want that story. I thought you wanted the whole story. <laughs> That's the whole story. No, I just meant like another minute of the video. Oh, that's what you meant. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't mean the context. <laughs> you didn't mean history. You just meant like you wanted another minute of the video. Like she had said before the video started, could you please throw me across the room violently? <laughs> yes, I can do that. Ah, see, now I got the whole start. That was How Do You Know It Was Racism by W. Kamau Bell. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform, and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Chris Arend. So your first step has been to build the portal. So you guys have been working on that behind the scenes all along, and I'm sure continue to work on that. Your second step is to get publishers and self-administered songwriters connected to the portal. Have you started that step yet, or is that down the road? No, that's going to be dependent on the portal. Obviously, we, we want to make sure that we have an environment within which to capture that personal data that we're going to need. And we can't do that until we have the portal. But one of the things that we've begun to talk about on the website and, and we'll continue to talk about is, you know, how folks can begin to play their part and prepare for that first big step. And that's where I think, you know, stepping back a bit, one of the things that's so interesting about the MLC is we are an organization that is governed entirely and exclusively by the stakeholders we will serve. So we're, we're not a, a for-profit entity. We're not some third party that kind of does this for itself first and for others benefit after. We're governed by a board that consists of publishers, both small and large, and self-administered songwriters. And everything we do is ultimately for their benefit. So in the same light, when we think about the task of data matching and just maintaining the data you know, one of the structural advantages the MLC will bring is a single database that we will use to administer all of the mechanicals for digital audio services. Whereas before that function was happening separately by, you know, companies working with individual publishers and songwriters, and there were a myriad of connections that had to be made. So we'll have a single database that we will use as that sort of connection between those two parts of the business. But there will be opportunities for every stakeholder, publishers, large and small, and songwriters to have access to their data, to see what is in the system, what has been matched and what hasn't, and then to help us make sure their data is as accurate as possible. And in that way, I think one of the real powerful messages behind the MMA was one of empowerment, right? The MMA was about empowering creators and their publishing partners to be in a position to ensure that they get paid properly. And I think that's a really positive change in, in the environment, right? All of us 
depend on other people for things in our lives. But the more we have the ability to control how those processes ultimately benefit us, the better. And that's a great message of empowerment. Definitely. You're using the the term self-administered songwriters, but really that would be just so our audience is completely clear. Songwriters who do not have their works with a publishing company, either administered by a publishing company or anything, they just own the publishing entirely themselves. Correct. That's an important distinction in that not every songwriter will need to connect with us directly, but everything we do will benefit every songwriter. So it just depends on how they've decided to organize their business. And for many songwriters, they have affiliated with or partnered with a publisher or administrative partner to help them with that administrative part of their business. And that's obviously great. And we'll then work with those partners. But for the songwriters who choose to administer their rights themselves, and increasingly that's that's a viable option for many, we will be dealing with them directly. What I love about what you guys do, I'm really kind of a music industry nerd because it makes me so happy. Any kind of conversation that we can have that shows artists, songwriters, musicians, that this is a business and that they need to treat it like a business is so wonderful for me to hear because it just, you know, it's like, I feel like I spent 20 years in the music business trying to explain to artists that it's important to pay attention to your business as a business, because if there's money in it, you want that money to be going to you and not to somebody else, some third party. And I think, you know, in this day and age, it's important for people to understand that the moment they upload a song to Spotify or some other DSP or, or they put it on SoundCloud, it's possible to monetize it. And you guys will be collecting the mechanicals for that song. So it's like, it's instantly generating money. So people have to understand that they can get that money. Yes. We chatted about that on an earlier call. And I think it's such an interesting aspect of all this too. You know, when you and I were kids and we were in bands you know, we could write songs and we could play songs and we could record songs. But for most of us, those recordings ended up on cassette tapes that we were limited to playing in our cars or maybe on a a cassette player. But there was no real meaningful access for us to the commercial market. So the idea that there was a a financial benefit to what we're doing was, was really non-existent unless and until we were signed by a publishing company or a label. And for the overwhelming majority of people, that didn't happen. Today, those same kids can record music using cutting-edge technology tools. They can make professional quality recordings, and they can upload this to every digital service in the world. And as you correctly point out, that now generates some financial revenue stream, both for the songwriting side and the performance side and the record side. So we have an opportunity now, and I think it's important for us to make sure that we're getting that message out to the newest members of, of the industry And the line for where the industry starts is much further back in the process. It's no longer about when and if you get that big deal. It really starts from the moment you decide to create and put your creative output out in the world. So again, outreach is going to be a huge part of what the MLC does. And we're very much thinking about how we can begin to connect with creators who are certainly in college and maybe even younger than that, so that as they start creating and putting their works out in the world, they understand the financial piece. Yeah, and and then if they turn into, you know, super successful professionals, they'll have benefited from having made those connections and figured that part of the business out at the very beginning, rather than much later in the process and after they left significant amounts of money on the table. 
Definitely. So your website is already live. It's themlc.com. And what's nice about that is you guys went ahead and you put some information on there for songwriters about what they should be starting to collect, the information that they're starting to collect. This is where we get into the really sexy part of this business, which is metadata. Yes. I know that's like the hottest topic (laughs) right now, the unsexiest, hottest topic in the music business. But yeah, so you guys have already started to put some of that information on the website so people can know what they need to be collecting. And honestly, that is like the thing that everyone is talking about right now is, is how to collect the data that you need so that you can properly get paid down the road. Yeah. And I, and I want to say this too, because I'm, I'm sure you know we have folks who are watching today who are experts in this space. And one of the, the really fascinating challenges for us, right, is we're not just talking to the most knowledgeable people in the industry, but we've got to be talking to the folks who know nothing about the industry. So the website, what we've done, and it's early days, is we've, we've tried to put some initial information on the site. First, that explains at a high level about how the MLC will work, and that's in the How It Works section. And even in that section, every one of those slides could be an hour lecture in you know any number of music business classes. I saw our board member Jeff Brabeck flash on and you know he could spend an hour talking about each one of those slides so there's more to tell but it's it's a starting point and on the data front you know we we've, we've tried to really speak very simply and and say to those self-administered songwriters in particular you know if you're thinking about what you need to do to connect with us one good first step is to collect the songs you've written right maybe there are notebooks that you've kept over the years many of us who've written songs you have notebooks where you jot ideas and you know, you're not necessarily keeping an Excel file or a Word document with everything in one place, but, you know, start that process of pulling those pieces together, making a list. And even if you do nothing other than make a list of the songs that you've written that have been recorded and commercially released, that is a first step. That list of songs represents some of the metadata that you need. And the more you can begin to compile that information yourself, the further along you'll be when we do launch the portal and we can bring you in and then again, start to fill out all the rest of the data that we'll ultimately need to match your songs with the usage data we're receiving. So, you know, I think metadata sometimes gets a bad rap because it can be very complex and it, it is complex, but it can also be very simple. And something as simple as a list of the songs you've written is a great way to start thinking about metadata. I think you guys are in, you're, you're lucky. You have benefited from the fact that sound exchange came into the marketplace more than 10 years ago with this like, hello artists, you suddenly have another source of income that you didn't know about message. And then they had to spend five years trying to convince everybody that they weren't, you know, the newsletter from abroad saying you know, you've won a billion dollars. They had the growing pains part of convincing artists that like, no, there is this other income stream. So I feel like you guys are probably lucky that you, you're you not going to have that as a problem. You know, when you, when you put it out there to people that there's this other income stream for them that they need to sign up and get a hold of, it's probably not going to be as bad as it was, you know, 11 years ago or whatever. Absolutely. And more broadly, there are a ton of people that are working in this space. And again, I see lots of names flashing on the chat. So we're by no means the first to come to this party. And I am by no means suggesting that I'm the, not even close to being the most knowledgeable person in the area. So, you know, to all the experts in the world, yes, this is another organization that will help to shine a light on the things that you've always known were important. And I think that's another aspect of the MLC that is, is exciting to me. 
you know, I've spent a lot of my career working in this part of the business, and there are some incredibly smart, talented, dedicated, passionate people who focus on this every day of their lives. And if the MLC can help to shine a light on those people and the work that they have been doing and can learn from their ideas, then we'll be that much better. So this is not about us reinventing any wheels. It's about us following the footsteps of a lot of people that have been out there already and trying to really bring that together and, and help move the ball forward in a meaningful way. But it comes on the backs of, of the efforts of a lot of people, like folks at Sound Exchange, as you mentioned, who have been working in the space for, for longer and who, again, are really knowledgeable. I get accused a lot about being obsessed with talking about race. People say, you're obsessed with talking about race. You're obsessed with talking about race. Really? In America, I'm obsessed with talking about race in America? Do you know who would disagree? Trayvon Martin's parents, probably. I think Oscar Grant's family would disagree. I think anybody in Guantanamo and their families would disagree. I think anybody who's the victim of racism every single day in America would agree that I am not obsessed with talking about racism in America. Accusing me of being obsessed with talking about racism in America is like accusing me of being obsessed with swimming when I'm drowning, all right? And that was the slam poetry section of the show. I'm not the one. I'm not the one that's obsessed with talking about race in this country. I'm not the one, right? I'm not the one who keeps bringing up 2042. How come I keep hearing about the year 2042 on the news? 2042, for those of you who don't know, is the year where, according to census figures, white people will be the minority in this country, right? They'll be 49%. No, who gives a Honestly, who gives a Why do I have to keep hearing about this? This number is not important to me. Are there white people in this country? That's who it's for, by the way. White people are freaked out. Are there white people in this country who are actually freaked out about this? Don't worry, white people. You were the minority when you came to this country. Things seem to have worked out for you, all right? But here's the bigger point. Here's the bigger point, right? 49% white doesn't make you the minority. That's not how math works, right? 49% white is only the minority if you think the other 51% is exactly the same, right? It only works if you think, well, it's 49% white people and 51% you people. That's the only way that works. Because that 51% is not a united front, okay? And it's easy to find out. Just ask a black guy and a Korean guy what happens when the black guy walks into the Korean guy's store, all right? I bet you the interaction might not be pleasant. I bet you it's not gonna be like, hey, teammate. How's it going, teammate? Pretty excited, you? 2042, am I right? That's not... That's not what's happening. There's some historic tension there. It's not a united front. And some of you might be thinking, well, hurry, you're saying that 51% is not exactly the same, but you're assuming that all white people are the same. Yes. No, no, of course not. I'm joking, right? Because white isn't a thing. Race isn't a thing, right? It's a social construct. It's a way to device. It's not real. And we know there used to be signs in this country that said no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, right? The Irish weren't white. The Jews weren't white. The Italians weren't white, right? Race is a way to device. It's not real. And the people of color in this room, you know this, because when you ask your white friends what their cultural heritage is, they don't just say white. They give you a math equation. Huh? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a third German and a fourth Irish and one sixteenth Welsh and one fortieth Native American for college applications. I mean, you know... Well, how this works. Woo! 
Waiting for 2042 is like waiting for Godot, all right? You're wasting your time and there's nothing to wait for. That was 2042 and the White Minority by Hari Kondabolu. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Chris Arend. So do you guys have any creative ideas? I know your team isn't completely together yet, but have you guys you know, brainstormed any creative outreach ideas to reach those self-administered songwriters and, you know, letting them know that this is out there for them to get involved with? Yeah, my uh, chief marketing officer, Ellen Truly, will appreciate if I don't freelance some ideas on the spot. We have begun to think about that. You know, as I mentioned, we have some very successful self-administered songwriters on our board who are also, again, extraordinarily creative people. So we're beginning to think about how we can bring that message to folks creatively and try to make it as simple, at least in the beginning, as we can. You know, I think that's another important thing. One of the challenges in the metadata space and the administrative space is between all the systems we use and all the acronyms, it's easy to overwhelm people. It's it's a language all of its own. And I think it's important for those of us that work in this area and, and who understand fundamentally that this is a service area, right? We're, we're doing this because it will help produce a better outcome from the creators we serve. It's important to make that accessible and to, to really bring that message to creators without burdening them with the acronyms and, and all of the terminology that can be complicated. Along with that, then will come the creative ideas from people more talented than me that will hopefully inspire those folks to learn a little bit more and to connect with us as they need to. So just to recap, so the plan is to build the portal to get the publishers and the self-administered songwriters connected to the portal and then have them review and update the data that you do have, which you're going to be bringing in from Harry Fox, and then you launch. And then after that, there will be a matching process, right? At that point, that's when the matching will start. Yes. So fundamentally, what we have to do is find all of the sound recordings that embody the musical works that we now have data for in our database, because when we get the usage reports in the DSPs, they will report on the usage or the consumption of those sound recordings. And it's through the connection or the matching of the music works data with the sound recording data that we then know how to distribute the mechanicals we receive. So that matching is important. And there are obviously things that we'll do on our end from a technical standpoint and from a manual standpoint to try to match as much as possible. But we'll also be making that data available to folks so they can not only see what we do have matched to them, but they can also see the unmatched and help us to identify uses that relate to their works. So again, that's where that that idea of playing your part, right? All of us have an interest in making sure that that's effective one of our key jobs is to create an environment, a user interface that's as friendly as possible to allow people to do that. But we also then want to make sure that they are doing that as well, because we will be a relatively small organization. You know, we'll probably top out a little under 100. So it's, it's not something that we alone can do. We need all creators, all publishers feeling like they've got a, a part to play in this. And together we can ensure that that matching rate is as high as possible. That's the goal. We want every single creator to get every dollar they're entitled to. Right. So when we talked before, we were talking about the fact that doing administrative stuff and metadata administration well is actually quite difficult. 
And you said, what does it mean to be excellent in this arena? So I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to be excellent you know, to you? Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll just step back to something you were saying earlier about the sort of the impact that the shift to digital had, because I, I do think that's a part of the story. And it, it's something that isn't always, uh, I guess, obvious. But in a physical world, we were limited. The number of products that could be in the market was limited by the space on the shelves. And even the biggest record stores could only have so much inventory. And so, you know, that limited the number of products that any of us had to administer. But the shift to digital suddenly meant that we had unlimited inventory. Every record that was ever made, every song that was ever recorded could be available to consumers. And then streaming changed things even further because now you've got a business that's based on consumption, which means that every time someone listens to a song, that creates a revenue stream. For a number of years at Warner, I worked closely on a joint venture we had with Frank Sinatra's family. And you know, I always thought about Sinatra as an example. There are millions of people who love Sinatra's music, but they may not have bought a, a purchased a Sinatra record for 20 or 30 years because they're still listening to their vinyl. Now, suddenly in a streaming world, every time they listen to that Sinatra song that is a favorite of theirs, every time that you, know, you or I play that song from the 80s on our workout playlist that we remember from when we were going out and seeing, uh, you know, dancing in the clubs, whatever, all of that now has revenue behind it. So the number of products we have to administer has exploded and the data that's related to that has, has grown exponentially. So what all of that means then, to get back to your question about excellence, is excellence isn't simply aspiring to do well. Excellence is being really intentional about how we build systems and processes in order to, to manage to an outcome that we want to deliver. And that means things like writing down the process. It's not enough to have smart people who say, oh, I remember the 20 steps. You've got to write those things down. You've got to make sure the whole team understands what it looks like. And then you've got to revisit that process regularly to make sure you understand where the process is working the way you hoped and where it isn't. And you know this gets into things like Six Sigma and Lean Sigma. Where are the pain points in your process, the waste points in your process, the places where it doesn't work well? And like any complex process, there are variables that you will never foresee. So you've got to be constantly looking at the process to figure out what is it that I didn't think about that I now have to factor in. I use an example sometimes because I've worked with some folks at a local consulting firm here who are incredibly talented, and one of them came from the auto industry. And if you imagine what it looks like to manufacture a car, you don't just set out one day and say, well, let's start putting the pieces together. That is a highly orchestrated process that involves hundreds, if not thousands of steps and thousands and thousands of parts, big and small. And every single one of those steps has to be highly choreographed and very intentional in order to produce the outcome, which is a car that looks like a car and drives like a car and doesn't fall apart the day you drive it off the lot. So in the same way, when we talk about excellence, what we mean is building really intentional processes that are intended to deliver an outcome being very data-driven so that we can monitor those processes and see where they work well or not, and then constantly trying to improve the process to get better, to make it better. It's not a static thing. It's an ongoing process of improvement. And then along with that, there are really important people parts to this, which include training your people really well and then continuously challenging them to get better. You know, continuous improvement is a culture, and you have to you have to build that culture from the ground up and make sure that every one of your people feels empowered to help drive improvement. One of the things that, that I, I saw 
in my prior role at Warner that was so amazing to me was there are challenges in any process that only the person dealing with them will know. And so what that means as a senior executive, there are things happening that could be improved and I will never know them on my own because I won't see them. So if I haven't empowered every single person on my team to raise their hand and say, hey, there's something I see here that's a problem, it won't get fixed. So you know, part of excellence is making sure that, that the organization sees what it's doing through the lens of every person in the organization and not just through the lens of the person who is in the leadership position in the organization. You know, I hesitate to say from the top because I don't view it that way. You know, I view the job of leaders as supporting the teams that they lead and making sure that those teams are empowered to make things better. So again, this is an area I'm so passionate about. And again, it, it, it requires a level of intentionality. It's not simply about wanting to do a good job. So that's excellence in a nutshell. And that's one of our guiding principles. It's on our website. You know, this is one of the ways that we're going to deliver on, on our mission and for our creators. Very inspiring, Chris. We're all very inspired. So I'm really hoping that, I mean, I think that the best thing for us to do is to plan to talk to you again at Music Biz in 2021. So that would be May of 2021. Absolutely. And see where you guys are then, because I feel like that would be very educational for everyone to see sort of where we came from, you know, in one year. Absolutely. Here, today, then. Yes. Though I, I hope with our outreach that we'll certainly take everybody on the journey and that I don't want to go away and then show up in a year. I want folks to understand what the journey looks like, what the challenge looks like. Again, starting from that, you know, that day one when there were two of us to, you know, when we'll hopefully be 75 or more people by the end of this year and hopefully have an office. You know, there, there's so many steps in that process and so much work being done by so many great people. So it'll be exciting to look back in a year and be able to highlight some of the great things that happened along the way and hopefully be in a position where we're beginning to deliver on that promise. But I will say this, you know, next May is not the end either. When we talk about license availability date, one of the things that I've tried to stress to our team is that's not the end of anything. That's the first day of the race and the race from there never ends. So license availability date is day one. And every day after that is a day when we will strive to do better and get better and that never stops. That's the exciting part. Well, we're all lucky to have someone as passionate as you leading the charge on this, Chris. So thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Portia. Because for the first time, we are seeing white people mad. <laughs> I, I mean, white people have been mad before, but you've never been this kind of mad this kind of long. No. <laughs> it's no. new to you. It's new to you. You're not used to it. Or when they tried to cancel um, Family Guy, that really pissed you off. Yes. <laughs> like, bring it back! What the f***? No, no. We're black, so for us it's more like a base coat. Yes. <laughs> Please allow us to be your anger sherpas, okay? Help you deal with waking up enraged. Mm-hmm. And how to not take that on in every single person. Yes, yes. What we like to invite you is to find your inner 67-year-old black woman, okay? It's helpful. It is very helpful. It's helpful. It's very helpful, all right? And we want you to think about, like, if you need a vision, a spirit animal, a god, Maxine Waters, okay? She gives, like, negative... Yes. Zero. Like she's like in imaginary numbers. Yes. Okay. And have you ever noticed like 
Maxine Waters, it doesn't matter if she's on TV, if she's what she's doing. Like she will she don't even she, have to be there. She don't have to be there. She will make a press conference out of anything. You know what I'm saying? Like they'll just be a reporter outside, like the rotunda or something, talking. Yes. Man, like, you know what? Today is infrastructure day. And Trump should be in jail with Bill O'Reilly. I think that was Maxine Waters. <laughs> Reclaiming my time, reclaiming my time. It doesn't matter, okay? Maxine Waters will make it. So that's what we want you to do. We want you to find your inner 67-year-old black woman, okay? Cause, cause that was Anger Sherpas by Frangela. And that's our show. The comedy we played today was used by permission. You heard W. Kamau Bell, Hari Kondabolu, Frangela, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was recorded via Zoom and in my closet and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Saban, president of the Music Business Association. Stay safe out there, everyone. I'll see you next week.